Amen. Before we get into the hot topic today, uh, again, by, by way of announcement, I guess, and it has to do with the vision of this church, actually, to reach the one who is far from God. Uh, I'm reminded of a, um, a kind of a new thing that's going on in my, in my own life. Uh, for a number of strange reasons, it came about by, by strange reasons. Uh, I am now uh, assessing church planters and beginning to do assessments on people who want to plant churches, and I do this uh, with our, our district of Quebec. And uh, I have been trained in a tool that's a very, very long personality assessment tool to, you know, you stick pins in these people who want to plant churches and see if they have the stuff to do it. And the particular uh, assessment I've been trained in, you got to sit down with this person for like six or seven hours straight, and you go through a myriad of questions. Uh, it's actually 66 specific questions that you ask these potential planters. Then you got to write up this very detailed report and make a recommendation. Can this person succeed in planting a church, yes or no? And so one of the questions that you, that you ask and that I have to ask these people who want to plant churches is this. Uh, tell me the last three people that you have led to a personal relationship with Christ and they're, they're in a church now. Tell me the last three people. And this is what they call a knockout question. So if the person has no answer, They've never done that before. No, it's not. You, you know, you met the person in church and you led the person to Christ, so to speak, in, in the church. No, not that. You meet someone outside the church, someone who's not a Christian at all. Maybe you met them at the workplace. Maybe you met them in a, an event or something, and you build a relationship with the person, and you actually have led the person to a relationship with Christ, and now they're in a church. If the answer is no, that's called a knockout, and it means that I have to write down in the report this person probably is going to have a really hard time planting a church because they don't lead people to Christ is what I have to write. And it was a sub-question to that question is, what did you do to get on that person's turf? What did you do to get into their world and get to know them where they are? It's one of the reasons why, why I serve in the food bank every week. And Mamadou, where are you? There he is. Mamadou was there last couple of weeks serving there in, in Mission Nouvelle Génération. We say hi to each other, you know, so it's two of us from the church there serving. You're getting on someone's turf there uh, who's, who's not a Christian. And uh, that's, that, that's the type of thing that you have to do. And sometimes it makes you a little uncomfortable to do that. And I've discovered that even kids can do that. And so all that to preface that next week on Saturday, our, our kids ministry, City Kids, is going to do something a little bit different. They're going to have uh, games that we bring in. Uh, the parents are getting involved and they're bringing in snacks and, you know, cooking sweets and doing all this kind of stuff. And we're taking advantage of the, the big elephant in the room for Christian families is, of course, October the 31st, right? It's a big, what do parents do with it and how do we navigate this, the Halloween thing? So what we're going to do is kind of take that, that culture does and shift it around a little bit and say, you know what, we've got an opportunity for kids to come. We've got an opportunity to get kids to come and have a good time in a safe environment so that there's something for them, and they can even invite, you know, a non-Christian kid, a non-church kid, a parent can invite a family next door and say, hey, our church is doing this. Do you want to bring your, your son, your daughter? I know it's always a sticky area for parents to deal with, so that's what we're doing. And yes, we've told parents, if your kid wants to bring a costume, they can wear a costume. As I often joke around here, I don't care what you're wearing on Saturday mornings as long as you're wearing something, okay? As long as you have clothes on, it's okay with me. Uh, boy, it's quiet. So I'm just telling you that that's happening next Saturday morning. So, you know, we'll see who shows up. Uh, but that's the kind of thing that, that you, you get on someone's turf a little bit by doing that way. Okay, you, you still with me? Wow, we'll see where this is going today. So I'm talking in the series that we started a couple of weeks ago called Taboo. There's these taboo subjects uh, that we think about all the time. 
what we rarely, rarely talk about, especially in church settings. And the one that we're doing today is the one that's a really heavy one, and that's the subject of sex, okay? So if you go to that slideshow for me, Martin, and, and put it on the screen, yippee, there we go. Uh, so I want to talk about this, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preface this by telling you, you are going to be a little bit disturbed by what you hear. Okay, you're going to because you're going to feel like I'm meddling into your personal life. You're going to feel like I, I know things about you that I don't know, and you know that I don't know them. Uh, and, and I'm praying that God is going to speak to you in this particular area that people really try and avoid, especially in church circles. So if you feel uncomfortable, uh, I'm telling you that that's okay. It's, it's all right to feel uncomfortable, and may God do the work uh, that he has to do uh, in this whole subject. And it's always on our minds. Uh, it's always something that we're talking about. You know, you're, you're joking about it at the water cooler. Uh, it's always in, in culture. It saturates the, this culture, North American culture uh, in particular, and the, the view that, that culture seems to have uh, about Christianity and sex or the Bible and sex is that it's wrong. <laughs> so, so the only use for, for human sexuality, at least the view of the popular culture is, is to have babies. So as long as you're having babies, then that's fine. But otherwise, you shouldn't have it. And, you know, enjoying it, well, you shouldn't enjoy it either. It's just for having babies. Okay, this is a lot of what the culture thinks is that that's, they think that that's what the Bible says and that's what the church teaches. And that's a bit of a strange view, but that's a view that's out there. Uh, and the question is, is that view really true uh, what does the Bible really say about this very, very important and yet very sensitive uh, subject? And we see it uh, in the news uh, all the time, and I'm doing it uh, today because of what's going on in the popular culture and in the news. Um, and we see, uh, just surveying the news a little bit, there's, there's a number of things that have happened in recent weeks, Yes. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Hugh Hefner, I think I spelled his name wrong. If you go to the next, the next slide there, uh, Hugh Hefner died. Any of you know who Hugh Hefner was? Okay, Hugh Hefner is the modern icon and the founder of uh, Playboy magazine, a uh, very successful uh, pornographic magazine. I think his name is with one F, but he passed away at the age of 91, I believe, and Hefner um, had a very specific vision uh, for the production of this magazine. And his vision was that uh, the Judeo-Christian ethic and the church has suppressed people and has suppressed their expression of sexuality and has put guilt on people and so I'm going to free people and liberate people and give people what they want because the church and really the, the whole Judeo-Christian ethic has suppressed the culture and people for too long. So I'm going to give them what they want. And boy, did he ever, because the empire of Playboy magazine was extremely successful. And what did, what, what did he do? He, he succeeded in basically uh, making women objects and playthings, uh, he called them bunnies, he did, uh, for the pleasure of men. And he was very, very successful at doing this and uh, was a key figure in the whole, in pornography itself, uh, this man was a key figure and he passed away. And then we have seen in very recent days, like within the last whatever it is, two weeks, an explosion has happened in the world of Hollywood and uh, this very powerful uh, producer, Harvey Weinstein, uh, has, there's allegations after allegations after allegations. I mean, you're talking, you know, dozens of women over a span of probably three decades of everything from sexual uh, harassment to abuse to rape. 
and the man has been deposed from his production company. He's been kicked out of the Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's in rehab somewhere. There's police investigations. Uh, there's been a hashtag that has started on Twitter uh, called hashtag MeToo, or in Quebec, moi aussi. And there are hundreds and thousands now, over a million. I think it might be in more than, in the multi-millions of women who are, are telling their stories of how they have been affected, either maybe harassed, abused, or raped by, by men. And this is, this is spreading all over the culture. And people are talking about this having a profound effect on the culture at large, on North American culture. It's hit us in Quebec. Uh, just this week, the head of Just for Laughs resigned abruptly. Uh, he was also the face of the 375th anniversary in, in Montreal, uh, Gilbert, Gilbert uh, Rosan, a very, very powerful uh, media guy in Quebec, abruptly resigned because of multiple allegations of the same kind of thing. And, this, and, and there's other leaders of, uh, in media in particular, and there's allegations coming out all over the place uh, because this is extremely common. So this is being talked about, this is in culture, and you'll discover that it was in the culture 2,000 years ago as well. And I want to take you back in time a little bit uh, to a place called Corinth uh, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You can look it up in your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm only going to look at five verses, all right? So you can open it up on your, on your phone if you have it on your phone or your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 5. I need to tell you a little bit about uh, Corinth. If you'll back up one slide, you see where you are? You go back. Can you help him, uh, uh, Aaron, a little bit? There we go. Back up again. There we go. This is the, the Mediterranean world uh, of, uh, of uh, the first century. Uh, you, you may not see much. On, oh, wow, that's a big screen. So you see where Greece is on the left there? Can you see that? Wave your hand a little bit. Okay. You see Greece, you see Achaia, and you move your, your eyes down a little bit, and you start seeing some of the smaller cities, and you can see little Corinth there. I'm going to zoom into it. Go to the next slide. There we go. And you can see Corinth on the side there. I put a little arrow to it. You see where it's located there? It's on a bridge of land. It's got, it's got the Mediterranean south to it. It bridges Athens and all of Greece, a very, very great location for trade and for commerce. Uh, this was a city that was destroyed by the Romans and rebuilt by the Romans. Paul and ended up visiting the city in the book of Acts, planted a church there. And this city had a reputation. Let me tell you, when it came to the subject of sex, a really bad reputation. In fact, if you called a person a Corinthian, you were basically saying they had a loose lifestyle, they were a drunkard, uh, and they were, in terms of, of their sexuality, they were extremely liberal and extremely immoral. And Corinth, in its heyday, before Paul would, would visit there, if you go to the next slide, Corinth uh, had a, uh, there were a number of temples there to all kinds of different gods. It was very cosmopolitan. It was somewhat multicultural. But that mountain that you see, the ruins of Corinth are in the foreground. In the background, you can see that mountain there. And that was called Acro-Corinth. In its heyday, there was a temple up there that was dedicated to the goddess of love, Aphrodite. And in its heyday, some ancient writers tell us that there were a thousand temple prostitutes who, it was part of the worship. So prostitution was linked to the pagan worship of that goddess, okay? And we're told that there were a thousand of them up there. And then they would come down into the city and ply their trade, so to speak, with various people who were there. We found in the ruins of Corinth, there may have been 30 or more 
uh, kind of bars, you would call them today, with these, these rooms upstairs. And scholars say, well, you know, even, even after uh, the Acro-Corinth and the temple that was dedicated to Aphrodite, even after that died out, uh, many of those, those ladies would still ply their trade uh, there in the city. And it had this horrendous reputation in terms of sexual looseness and sexual immorality. And so what's going on there as we look at the text is that these people are becoming Christians, and they've got a lot of questions, all right? Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians are letters that have an occasion. So they, we, we call them occasional literature. So there's a reason why Paul writes them, and you got to kind of be on the other end of a phone conversation and you don't really know what the questions were and the issues were. And you have to figure out what they were based on what he's saying and knowing something about the culture and the context of what's going on in the city. You still with me? All right. So are you still with me? Okay, okay. Just checking, just checking. So, so it, it, they're becoming Christians and they've got the big questions for Paul and he, he intros the first six chapters, and he, he talks about theology, he talks about some of the problems that were happening in the church with regard to unity and leadership and all this kind of stuff. And then he gets into this question, and he says in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, if you track with me, Martin, now for the matters you wrote about, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 1, now for the matters you wrote about, and I'm going to uh, read the, the, the text there, um, it is good for a man not to marry, or in some translations, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Okay, full stop, so you understand where he's coming from. Again, you have these people who come out of this lifestyle where there's huge amounts of, of uh, shall we say, very liberal sexual expression, and then they become Christians, and so probably their question is, should we stop this abruptly and live, you know, celibate lifestyles because of our newfound faith in Christ? It's the first thing, apparently, on their minds. It's of prominent importance to them, and because he addresses this first, he addresses a number of issues. But the first issue that he's addressing is, of course, sex. And this is his advice, first and foremost, and this will apply especially to people who are in the room who are single. He affirms singleness and Christianity. So he's basically saying in verse 1 there, it is good for a man not to marry or not to have sexual relations with a woman in some translations. He's basically saying, listen, you come out of this lifestyle and you say, you, should, we, should we abandon the thing altogether and live, you know, celibate, completely celibate and single uh, uh, lifestyles and avoid the whole thing altogether? And that's what you want to do because of your newfound faith? Go ahead. He's saying that's not a bad thing. And you will see that Paul, later on in the chapter, reaffirms that. And he says, listen, when a person gets married, they've got, they've, they've got to take care of this person. They've got responsibilities toward this other person. And the person who's single, well, they can devote themselves to God, can't they? And so he does not, does not bash their idea and say, no, 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 it's a, you, you, you have to get married. He doesn't do that. I bring this up because especially in church circles... There is a tremendous amount of pressure put on single people as if there's something wrong with them if they're single. So when they're 20 and they're single, it's okay. But when they're 30 and they're single, people start looking at them sideways. And when they're 40 and they're single, there's something wrong with them, right? What's wrong with you? How come you didn't get married? How come you have no kids yet? Is there something wrong? No, Paul would say there's nothing wrong. And God would say there's nothing wrong. I don't know why the church puts so much pressure on people as they begin to age, which happens to all people, and they may not be married. But Paul says, well, that's quite all right. If that's a decision that you make, and that's the way that God has wired you, then that's quite all right. So he doesn't bash it. He affirms this. He affirms this kind of concept that these people probably have in their heads. But then he goes on, and track with me, okay, Martin? So he goes on in verse 2, and he says, but, but, since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife 
and each woman her own husband. Okay, full stop, because he's doing something really, really fast here, something that they would, would certainly understand, but we have to pause a little bit to grip it. He, he's, he's defining things for us really, really quickly. So he's talking about sexual immorality, and he's talking about what I'll term uh, the, the opposite to that sexual morality. He's got both of them in his mind. And he's basically saying, because there is so much, you Corinthians know how much there is. You Corinthians know how much you lived that way because there is so much expression and so much sexuality happening and so much of it being experienced by you Corinthians because you, you, you have that in your wiring. You're not the one who necessarily wants to be celibate and single. Because of that, you need to express it in a healthy context. And so he defines it, he's got immorality, and then he has marriage as a moral context for sexual expression. Now again, full stop. When God says something is immoral, he doesn't say it because he wants to ruin your life. He doesn't say it because he wants to take away your happiness. He doesn't say it because he wants to remove your joy. He says it because it's going to hurt you. If you live in a sexually immoral way, it is going to hurt you. Eventually, it brings destruction. And anytime God declares something is sin, it's because of our benefit. It's not to harm us. He's not a killjoy. Uh, you will discover in the chapter that God is very much a fan of sex. He created it, and he didn't only create it for procreation. Uh, you will see that in this chapter. So Hugh Hefner got it very, very wrong. Uh, but he defines this. And the Corinthians would know what sexual immorality was. You had all of, the, all of this stuff happening with the, 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 the prostitution. You see, as you read in, in Corinthians further, you had the whole gamut of things happening there. You had a situation where a man was sleeping with his, with his, uh, his stepmother. Uh, and Paul calls the situation out. You have homosexuality happening there in the city of Corinth. Paul calls it out. Uh, he mentions a whole bunch of things under the banner of sexual immorality. Now, the same thing is true today. Now, what's going on in churches today and in Christian circles today is that the big topic of discussion and where we spend all of our time is on the whole subject of LGBTQ, etc. And we, we decry the perils of all this stuff and transgenderism and all that. I read, uh, in, I think it's in California, they've actually come up with a new gender. So they have male, they have female, and then they have another gender legally. You could declare yourself another gender, not male or female. Not sure what the gender is, but that's now, I think, uh, becoming law in, in one particular state. I think it's California. And of course, the church, we decry the perils of this, and as well, we should. But we need to be also very careful because the number one uh, prevailing issue of, of immorality that's going on in the broader culture and even going on in church culture, culture, and I've already mentioned it, is pornography. This is absolutely pandemic and rampant across the culture, and it is even in the church culture. Uh, I was watching a documentary the other day, a Christian documentary, and they were citing studies on the subject of pornography, and they have stated in one particular study that 100% of young people will have viewed porn by the age of 18. 100%, a certain study is claiming. Do you know what that means? If that's true then that means those of you who have kids who are in this room, they are at risk for seeing that stuff. Uh, that means probably those of you who are in this room, I would venture to say more easily more than 50% of the people in this room have viewed it or are currently viewing it. Now, I don't know who you are. I don't know your, I don't know your house. Uh, but this is what the statistics are saying, and I can tell you in church circles, having been around 
uh, church people, for quite a number of years, those stats aren't much different when it comes to Christian folk. And that's a very, very frightening thing because what goes on in that media is savage treatment, in particular of women. Savage. And the things that go on in that type of media, I cannot even mention them to you in this kind of context. You're talking about, you're talking about violence. You're talking about abuse. You're talking about things that, I mean, savage. And this is what we are consuming today. This, in my view, is the major, major problem that the culture faces at large. Is it LGBTQ and all that stuff? Yeah, that's there. But we need to address what's really prominent and relevant to us as well. And I have seen this in the church culture over and over and over again. It brings nothing but destruction to people's lives. And it is highly ironic that the Hollywood industry, which produces media, and not, not porn per se. Harvey Weinstein did not produce porn. Uh, but the, the Hollywood media at large, the things that play on the screen behind me, to a large extent, show lots and lots of sexual immorality, very liberal portrayals. It is highly ironic that that culture kept hush, 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 while actress after actress and, and woman after, after woman was being harassed and abused and even raped by these Hollywood moguls and stars. How ironic. And the things, if you read the accounts, which are all over the news, and you read these things in, in, in the hashtag moi or me too, and you read the accounts of these women, what do you see? You see that men are copying the behavior that they see in this pornography. They're doing the exact same thing that they see on these screens. And yet we say that it has no effect on culture? When it's possible that 100% of young people are looking at this garbage before the age of 18? Wow, we have a major, major challenge on our hands. Even the word that Paul uses uh, for sexual immorality is the word porneia. And of course, we get the word pornography from this. I will tell you, this is savage. And it teaches things about, about sex that are completely false. And it teaches things in particular about women that treats them. I mean, I've, I've, I can't even describe the things that I heard uh, described in this documentary uh, that I watched recently. That is immoral and that brings destruction. Uh, another big one that we see in particular in the province of Quebec is cohabitation. Uh, and, and Quebec is very, very high in this, in that many or most couples do not marry or eventually will get married. And uh, this, is, this is an issue, friends. And I don't want to make, I, I'm not trying to make you feel guilty or put pressure on you. There could be couples in here today who are cohabiting. It's very much part of the church culture now. Most of the weddings I do of Christian people are people who are, have either cohabited or they've had, you know, they've had sex or they're, you know, they may be living in separate apartments, but they're very, very sexually active with one another. Even in the church, I've discovered this. It's very rare that I run into a couple that are actually virgins before they get married. Sorry to be so blunt and so graphic and so honest. Is that okay? Oh, you're so quiet. Stay with me, okay? What I do with couples who come and see me and they want to get married, I ask them that question. I'm very, very blunt, honest, and I ask them that question. You know what I tell them? I don't say to them, oh, you're a horrible sinner. I'm not going to marry you. Uh, no, I'm, I don't say that. You know what I say? I say, I'll marry you. I would love to marry you. I'd be honored to marry you. But I have one catch. One of you is moving out. One of you is leaving the apartment until the wedding. I usually throw that in the mix. And that's when I get a look from the couple, and they, they look at each other, they look at me, and I say, yes, I am serious, one of you is moving out. I remember a situation where a couple had kids, house, everything, it was impossible for, for one of them to move out. I said, well, that's fine, one of you sleeps on the couch until the wedding. You know what? I haven't had one couple come back to me after the wedding and say, oh, you know, we just hated that recommendation after the wedding. Before the wedding, they don't like me too much. But after the wedding, I've not had one couple come back and want their money back for that decision. 
Say, I want a refund. That was a bad decision. Every single couple says, you know what? It was very, very difficult, but that was the right decision for us to make because God honored that decision. You know what happens with couples that live together before they're married and then they get married? You know what happens? A lot of times they struggle, in particular in the area of sexuality. And the reason is that they both know that, hey, we're not married, so any of us can get out. If things go sour, if, if things get difficult, we both know that one of us can leave. We know this because we've chosen not to be married, okay? But then they put the rings on their fingers, and then they say, why are we struggling in particular in this area? And the reason is, and this is going to sound a little bit crude here, and I don't mean to, to offend, um, but what happens in the relationship, if, if you know you can get out, is you're always keeping that in the back of your mind. And so it's a bit like, sorry to be crude, a bit like leasing a car. And you know you're on a lease. It's a long-term lease. But you know you can take it back if you want to. You know you can switch out if you want to. You know that you can go if you want to. You can get out of it. You can, you know, you're, you're in a way, in a way, and again, sorry to be crude, you're, you're sort of kicking the tires a little bit. And you're saying, well, is this going to really work? Well, let's try. Let's kick the tires. Okay, there's air in the tires. Uh, but when you're married and you, and you kick the tires and the air goes out of the tires, then you got to put air back into it. you got to put work into it. And all of a sudden, your mentality has to shift, but you're not used to that. And this is what happens. I've never had a couple tell me, oh, we wish that we'd have been more sexually active before we were married. No, most couples, they say, you know what? It was good that you made us wait, Pastor. Thank you. And maybe some of you are in that situation. Come and see me. I would be honored to do your wedding. Absolutely honored. I won't condemn you at all. But I will put that as a clause uh, for, your, for your benefit. Many, many other things happening in terms of sexual immorality that's destructive. And probably there are women in particular in this room who have experienced some type of of what's going on today in the culture, and you would be able to identify with that hashtag Me Too. Let me read you a little story uh, from a church person. Uh, when Kay was molested by the son of the church janitor, she didn't tell anyone. She was five years old, and while she didn't have the language to describe what happened, she knew it was something bad and probably her fault. Growing up as a pastor's kid, Kay was devoted to living a perfect, spotless life that wouldn't embarrass her dad or disappoint Jesus. She knew the right answers to the Bible trivia questions. She wanted to be a missionary. Uh, when she discovered pornography at a house where she was babysitting, Kay found herself both repulsed by and attracted to it. And that's what happens. That's the nature of porn. Uh, after looking at it for the first time, Kay resolved she would never do it again. She kept making this resolution every time she would babysit, and every time she still looked. She kept making this resolution as she developed an addiction that, that carried the added shame of being supposedly a man's problem. Well, it was her problem, and she was a woman. Kay got married early to a driven young youth pastor who she barely knew, and the pressures of being a pastor's wife kept her in the familiar pattern of sexual shame and hiding. And when she first told her husband that she was raped as a child, she was, he, uh, she was so emotionless about it that he just brushed it off. And it wasn't until their marriage nearly collapsed that Kay Warren, the wife of Rick Warren. I don't know if you've heard of Rick Warren, one of the most influential pastors and Christian leaders in North America, if not the world. Have you ever read The Purpose Driven Life? That's Rick Warren. This is Rick Warren's wife. Uh, and so <laughs> it, it wasn't until their marriage nearly collapsed that Kay Warren realized if her marriage to Rick Warren had a chance of surviving, she would have to find healing 
from the shame of her past. Around 10 years ago, she started sharing her story of sexual abuse, but her story has resurfaced recently as a chorus of prominent evangelical women have come forward announcing Me Too following accusations of predatory sexual behavior from influential Hollywood, Hollywood producer Harvey Weinstein, and the rest you know already. So when God says it's immoral, it's because it destroys people's lives and because it destroys individuals and it can destroy a whole culture. Okay, He's not a killjoy, and he presents marriage as the healthy, safe context for uh, uh, sexual expression. And he goes into this in verses 3 and 4 and describes it in some blunt terms there. If you'll track with me, Martin, uh, the husband, this is how he describes sex in this context of marriage. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him alone, but also to his wife. What do we see implied in that kind of a relationship? Well, we see an exclusiveness there. You've got one man, you've got one woman to the exclusion of all others. Paul is setting this up as an exclusive thing, and really it's nothing new. This is something that's taught in the Old Testament over and over again. It's apparently a selfless expression, so the husband has to realize he has a responsibility to his wife, and the wife has to realize she has a responsibility to her husband. There's selflessness that's implied there. There's certainly trust that's implied there. If you're going to give yourself to that person in that way, then you've got to trust that person. Um, and this is the healthy expression and the healthy context that Paul is trying to teach these Corinthian people. Are you with me so far? I'm going to keep asking you, okay, because the, the looks on your faces, I'm not so sure uh, if you're with me, okay? So there's an, ex there's an exclusiveness to marriage. Uh, there, there's a selflessness to marriage. And there's trust in marriage. You have those three ingredients, talking to some of the married couples here, then you have the ingredients for healthy sexual expression. And Paul will say nothing in this chapter about childbearing. No, he's not talking about childbearing there. He's not saying that children don't come from it, but he's not addressing that specifically as the reason why married couples have sex. He's addressing it because it's for their enjoyment. This is what he's trying to say. And this is how you enjoy sex in life, in this exclusive, selfless, and trusting relationship. And the same is very, very true today. And then Paul will get even deeper into his description, and he will say this in verse 5. And uh, he'll say, do not deprive each other except by mutual consent and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Wow, what a crazy thing that he seems to be saying there on the outset, but look at what he's saying. And I call this the toxic uh, marital sex game because there is a game that some couples play when it comes to sex, even in their own marriages, and it's toxic. And it's this game of deprivation. And Paul uses this word deprive, and he says, do not deprive one another. Let me tell you how this looks even in marriage, okay? Uh, first and foremost, when, when married couples are doing something so silly and so foolish, like bringing pornography into their marriage, what you have is deprivation that happens there. Because typically, and typically it's men who get addicted to this stuff, but women do as well. And what happens is that the other partner is competing with the porn. And so in many cases, it's the wife, and she is competing with this, with this stuff. And she, by virtue of that, is being deprived as a result. 
And so the, in many cases, it's the male, but sometimes it's the female. They cannot experience any kind of satisfaction from anything except that porn. Forget about their spouse. Their spouse, for lack of better words, doesn't do that anymore for them. It's the porn that does. And that is a deprivation, and that should be obvious. But there's other kinds that happen in marriage that, again, go under this broad spectrum of this word. Oftentimes, when couples are struggling in their relationship, what they do is they use sex as a bargaining tool and as an emotional manipulative game and as a form of extortion even. And so you, you may have a selfish spouse, husband or wife, who they want something, and you, many times it's for selfish reasons. And if they don't get that thing, whatever it is, then forget about the whole sexual union and all that. It's not happening. Because their selfish need wasn't met, well, if, if, if you want the whole sexual thing, then you better be giving me what I want. And many times it's selfish. Now, just, just again, and this should be obvious, I'm not talking about a situation where perhaps you've had adultery in the marriage and it destroys that whole union. And if the spouse who's been cheated on decides to stay in there, well, obviously it's going to take a long, long, long time for the whole sexual thing to be healthy again. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when it's used as a bargaining tool and both, both spouses know it. They know that there's a manipulative game going on. That's deprivation, and that's a bad thing. Uh, oftentimes what happens, again, speaking in this very sensitive area in people's bedrooms, uh, what happens is you can have, in many cases, it's the husband again, and they, they really they, they behave in quite a selfish fashion in that particular area. And while everything, you ask them how things are going, oh yeah, everything is hunky-dory. Yeah, and you ask the wife how everything is going, and she's frustrated and frustrated and left completely unfulfilled in that area. Why? Because her spouse is, you know, just fairly selfish and fairly immature. And so it leads to frustration, and that can add to deprivation. And Paul says, no, 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 you do not play this deprivation game except... When you mutually decide, again, you have trust that has to happen there. When there's a mutual decision by both spouses to say, you know what? We're going to take time to focus on God. We're not going to take time to focus on our own, our own needs and the needs of one another in this area. But we're going to take time to pray together. We're going to take time to, in some ways, you could call it a fast in order to focus on God for a time. But that has to be by mutual consent, Paul says, for we could say religious reasons, spiritual reasons. But the, again, the caution there is to avoid this toxic game of deprivation. And then what does Paul say? If you'll, if you'll track with me there, Martin, uh, again in verse 5, he says, Then come together again so that Satan, wow, he names him, will not tempt you because of your lack of of self-control. And, and we'll close uh, with this idea. What Paul is doing in a general sense is trying to say you need to have healthy boundaries against temptation in your marriage. Now, some of the single people are here and you're saying, oh, this is so boring. All you're doing is talking about married people. Listen, if you're single and you do want to get married, you need to watch out for temptation as well. Just because you're single doesn't give you the right to sin sexually. It doesn't just because you're single. And just because you're married, it doesn't give you the right to do that either. And let me, let me teach you a little bit about boundaries in a healthy way when it comes to sex. Okay, men, and men in this room will agree with me, for men, the, the, the switch goes on, I'll put it that way, uh, visually. Predominantly for men, it's visual. So men are kind of hardwired this way. In terms of sight, it, it, it can really, really turn that switch on for males. And this is why pornography is so predominant in men. And studies have been done on this. When men look at that stuff, the body fires chemicals into the bloodstream. Okay, one of those is called epinephrine. 
and it fires into the bloodstream and it lights up the brain. And basically, I mean, you can test this. Uh, just, just watch men. Okay, women watch men. Men watch men. Watch how they look at women. In particular, you know, maybe downtown Montreal or over here, Quartier d'Istrante on a, you know, Saturday night. Just watch how men look at women. And you're going to see, right? You're going to see, you're gonna, I mean, some men are so bad at this, they could walk into a lamp pole. And, and they, oh, oh, sorry, you know, and for the, they don't even know what's going on half the time, but that chemical is firing off in their brains and it's lighting up the brain. And, and they like it because there's a sensation that happens. They don't know what to call it because they could care less about the science, but just observe the way that men look at women and you'll, you, you'll see that my theory is true. And men who are in this room, you know my theory is true. No wonder Jesus said, uh, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that if anyone looks at a woman lustfully in his heart, he's already committed adultery. Wow, Jesus apparently knew the science of it <laughs> as well, okay? That's in uh, Matthew chapter 5. Uh, so for men, you've got to watch what you look at. That's why you need to have boundaries, married men, single men. You need to watch what you see and what you look at. Can I tell you, just you may find it a little strange, but in my house, man, we've got many layers of rules in that area, okay? My house, and some of you have been to my house, is very open. Uh, we have one television. Everybody can see what anybody is watching on television. We have no televisions in any bedrooms. We have no televisions in hidden places. We got one TV. We have no cable. I have a $20 Radio Shack antenna. I get 13 channels. I watch Netflix. But when I watch television, guess what? My family's always there. They're always sitting next to me. And we have this rule when we're watching television, especially if it's, you know, a channel with advertisements, we keep our finger on that little button. Do you know why? You can, you can watch 90 seconds, 120 seconds of advertisements in a primetime television show, and you are going to be hit with a quarter of a second, uh, maybe, maybe as long as five seconds of, of, a, of a sex scene, boom, just like that in primetime television. Sorry, but I'm not interested in looking. And so we just flip the channel when there's the ads. I like watching sports, in particular baseball, because I watch it over the internet. No ads, zero. There's a little graphic that comes on the screen for three minutes between each inning. Great for me. I don't have to worry about the ads on television. Any kind of media that we consume in terms of movies in the popular culture, we always pre-screen it. So I'll always look and read a review of it on Plugged In. Plugged In is a great website, pluggedin.ca. And I'll read it and say, okay, I go right to the sex section. I go right there. Tell me if it has any sex in it, please. Uh, because I come from a background, you know, where it, there's a lot of dysfunction back there. And so I always go straight to that portion. And say, if there's any smidgen of it, no, it's off the viewing list, right? Because I don't want my life and my family's life infected by temptation, you see? And you need to set up these kinds of boundaries. Married men, single women, you need to, single men, you need to set them up. Women, it's not primarily visual. And again, I'm speaking in a general sense. For women, it's emotional. When there is an emotional connection with a man, that will lead to, in some cases, a sexual connection. This is why women love uh, soap operas <laughs> and those little, those little paperbacks you buy in the store there with the picture of the guy who's, you know, shirtless, who looks like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger on the front, and you know, he's got some girl in his arm like this, and, it, you know, it's this false presentation of an emotional connection, which in a sense, uh, it, you know, it, it's satisfying that kind of need that they may, get from their, may not get from their spouse, you see. And so that type of thing can lead down the road of sexual temptation. Practical sense, women, if the guy is flirting with you at the office, right? And if he is, he's just such a nice guy, he's nicer than my husband, he emotionally connects with me, you better watch out for that guy. You better be very, very careful around that guy. Because if he's turning a crank inside of your heart, then there may be another crank that he wants to turn. 
and that's not going to be a good one for your marriage. Be very, very careful of that type of thing. Same thing for men. Men, you watch your conversations. You know, at the office, in the school, wherever you are, you watch your conversations that you're having because you teach people how to treat you in this area, right? If you're you're a flirt, guys, at the office, well, guess what? They're going to flirt with you because you taught them that you're a flirt. If you teach them that you are the geekiest, nerdiest guy who loves his wife and has no interest in, in the flirtation or in the conversations that are happening at the water cooler, guess what? They're going to leave you alone because you taught them to leave you alone. Do you understand what I'm saying? You need to have this kind of protection because Satan is no dummy. And he will, he will try and attack your marriage. He will try and crack at that foundation and chip away at that foundation because if he can crack marriage, you see, if he can destroy marriage, then he can get a whole culture. He can get a whole culture to destroy itself. Watch out that you are not tempted because of your lack of self-control. Paul says, very blunt, very, very graphic, and I, I end it there but present you with a moment and with a challenge if the worship team could come and if they could just begin to play uh, the, the, the chorus in the background of your name. Just play it softly in the back, and I want to have a kind of a private moment with you. I believe that there are many, many people in this room, and this is a decent, you know, decent size gathering here. I believe there are many, many people in this room, and something in, in the message has struck a chord with you. Say, oh, I relate to that, I relate to that, I relate to that. I mean, maybe the reading of Kay Warren's story just turned this big light switch on in some of the ladies' hearts that are here today. Uh, Maybe there are those of you, and you are struggling in this area. There could be those of you who are consuming porn, and you cannot, for the life of you, find a way to break that habit. It is an addiction. And you know that it is. It could be there are those of you, you're married and you're facing moments of difficulty in this area. You're facing moments of temptation in this area, moments of struggle. Could be that you know the pain of the thing. Could be that you've had a, a, a partner, a spouse uh, cheat on you. You know the pain of it. But this affects every single person, regardless of your age, regardless of your background, regardless of your culture. It is everywhere. So I want to have just a a private moment with you and a word of prayer with you and offer you, if if that's you and you say, I need to do something about this, come and see me privately. Make sure no one's looking or you can text me. You see, I put my cell phone on the screen all the time. Can I tell you there's hope for you? I've worked in particular with many, many men in this area. I'm not sure why. It could be because of my own background, but I've worked with many, many men. And I can tell you that there's hope in this area, but you have to be willing to admit, hey, something has to change here because what's happening, it's, it's, it's destructive. Can I just have a word of prayer with you? If every eye could be closed, I don't do this very often. And just for a moment of privacy, because I'm going to ask for a response. I'm not going to ask anyone to come to the front at all. I do that very, very rarely here. But I am going to ask you just to slip your hand up if you say, you know what, I relate. It doesn't mean you have, a, you, you, you have something that, uh, that everyone's going to know by raising your hand. It's just, you're just saying, I, see, I, I have a point of connection with what something that you said has struck me, and God is speaking to me through what you've said. I don't know what that something is, but if that's true, can you just slip your hand up so that I can see you, just me looking, so that I can pray for you, okay? Yes, thank you for your honesty. Some hands going up. I'm just, you can put them down. I'm just looking around a little bit more. Again, it's a private moment between me and you, okay? Just give you another moment. I know it's really, really hard. But I know from experience, sometimes it starts just with a hand that's going up in the air privately. 